But I do have the privilege of opening up the word to you this morning, and I want to take you back to last week. You remember Scott preached, and he said uh, last week that it was almost like a a spur-of-the-moment thing. Sunday morning, he woke up and changed the direction of his message. He was going to open up John again, but he decided not to because he kind of had a nudging from the Spirit of God to address a very important topic, and the topic was that of justification. And so if you think back with me to last week, Scott asked and then he answered two vital questions, two vital questions. He asked, what is justification? And then he asked the follow-up question, which is just as important, how is one justified? And I'm grateful that the Spirit of God redirected him. I actually told Jess, man, that's the kind of message that if I wasn't saved, I think I would get saved. Because he presented the gospel in such a clear and powerful way. And I know it was clear and I know it was powerful because I had several of you come up to me to tell me, Dom, I have never heard a message like that before. Some of you even said in 5, 10, and 15 years at my former church, no one has ever preached on the doctrine of justification. And so I'm grateful for the little detour. It's helpful for us to remember gospel truth. Not just for the non-believer, but for us who believe. We need constant reminders of the gospel. Not just that the gospel saves, but the gospel sanctifies. So we need gospel reminders, and again, I'm just grateful that Scott took the time last week to unpack that for us. You know what justification is now, because it was clearly defined. Scott said, justification is the legal declaration that you have been made righteous with respect to the demands of God's law. And he outlined outlined it very clearly for us. What Christ does in our justification is he takes our sin, he takes our disobedience, he takes our lack of faith, and he imputes that to Christ. Christ takes that to the cross and pays the penalty on our behalf. And it is the, uh, the, the double blessing that he talked about. That, that's not all that happens. What also happens is that Christ's perfect life of righteousness, his perfect obedience is imputed to us. It's not infused and we work alongside with him, but it is imputed to us. It is this, this double blessing. Scott was very clear what justification is. And he said the only way that we're justified, the means by which we're justified, is by faith, and faith alone in Christ alone. That was his message last week, and if you weren't here, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to Scott's message. Well, what I want to do with our time this morning, I want to ask a follow-up question. What is justification? How is one justified? And the question that I want us to focus on this morning is how do you know that you've experienced justification? How do you know that you're elect? How can you sit here this morning and have confidence, have assurance that the justification that Scott outlined for us last week actually applies to you? That'll be the focus this morning. And so I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
as you're turning there, I want you to realize that the church in Thessalonica gives us a clear example of what it really means to be transformed by the gospel. This church really is a model for us and a model for all believers what gospel transformation looks like. Here in our text this morning, we're going to see five evidences of a justified life. Five evidences of a justified life. And I want you to realize that this list is not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination, but it's going to be extremely helpful in helping us to discern what it means to truly live a justified life. How do you know that you this morning have been justified? Our outline, I think, comes right from the text, and it's pretty simple. If you're asking the question, how can I know that I've been justified, here you go. Number one, we're going to emulate Christ if we've been truly justified. We know that we've been justified when we become a Christ-like example to others. You know that you've been justified when you evangelize the lost. You know that you've been justified when you are exclusive in your worship. And then finally, we're going to look at another evidence. You know that you've been justified when you wait with eager expectation for the Lord's return. All of this just coming right out of the text. And what I want us to do this morning is examine ourselves. As we look at the church in Thessalonica, I want us to evaluate whether those same evidences that mark them as truly justified actually mark us as well. So I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll jump right in. Would you follow me along as I read God's word, starting in verse 1? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Would you please pray with me one more time before we dive into the word? Let's pray. Oh, Father, my prayer is that you would come in power, that you would honor the teaching of your word, that you would magnify your son, that you would give me, your servant, great faith to believe that you are working in and through me to encourage your people for the sake of your name. Be our help, God. Give us ears to hear. Give us understanding so that we might live a life of obedience and faithfulness and prove the great gospel 
every day in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm very grateful that week after week from this pulpit, from Scott and from our other elders, that the gospel is preached, that Christ is proclaimed. There's no doubt in my mind that we are a well-fed church, that the equipping classes, that the grace groups, the men's and women's Bible studies, our youth, our children's ministry, we just have a constant, steady diet of the Word of God. But hearing the word and being transformed by the power of the word are not the same thing. So how do you know that when the gospel comes to you like it did last week, that it's coming in more than just propositional truths? How do you know that it moves beyond just the historical facts of who Jesus is and and what he did? How do you know that the gospel has actually transformed your life personally? Well, what evidences can you point to to say, yes, I have been changed. I have been transformed by this gospel. Borrowing Paul's language right here in chapter 1, has the gospel come to you in more than just words? And if so, how can you be sure? Well, I think Paul helps us answer that. And if we look here down at verses 2 and 3, he says this. Chapter 1 is really framed with his gratitude to God. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. The doctrine of election is laid out here. God has chosen you. And we're not going to elaborate on all that the doctrine means but I think you should be answering, asking this question. How did Paul have confidence that these Thessalonian believers were actually chosen? Well, what gave Paul assurance that these new believers were actually living out the gospel that was preached? Look at verse 4 with me. It's right there in the text. He says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And then here's the key, right in verse 5. How do you know this, Paul? How do you have confidence in this, Paul? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but how did it come? It came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When Paul says that our gospel came to you, he's not saying that he has a different kind of gospel, but this is the gospel that was preached. When we came to you and brought you the gospel, we know that it impacted you. We know that it worked because it didn't just come in word only. He says, I'm persuaded of your election. I'm confident that you've been justified because when the gospel came, it came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit and it came with conviction, full conviction. But that raises another question. That's how the gospel came, but how was it actually received? I sat there last week And it was a powerful message of the gospel. But I just wonder, how was that received by people? For the non-believer sitting in here, did they actually respond? Did they receive it with power? Did they receive it in the Holy Spirit? Did they receive it with full conviction? I mean, think about all the times that you have sat in church. Going back, when, when, when was the time that you actually finally believed 
For me, when I was in junior high, I sat under the preaching of the word time and time again, and I resisted it. I heard it, but I resisted it. And it's not that it was the preacher's fault. I blame it on my stubborn and unrepentant heart. But how long did you go listening to the word, preached week after week, and remained unconverted, sitting in a pew, sitting in a chair? So again, how does Paul know that when the Thessalonians heard the gospel, that they actually received it this time? Well, follow the train of thought in the text here. He tells us exactly how he knew. Look at this significant phrase at the beginning of verse 6. He says this, and you became, you became. When the gospel came to you in power, Paul says you actually became something. There was a transformation that took place. It did something in your life that has no explanation other than the gospel finally and powerfully worked in your life. And just so you don't miss the significance of this phrase, look at verse 7. Because there it says the same thing. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So how do you know that you've been truly justified the gospel? The answer is actually simple. Have you become something other than what you once were? Have you become something other than what you once were? And it's not just something different. It's not some new and improved you. It's not you 2.0. It's a new you. The Bible describes it as a new creation. Have you become a new creation? Two times Paul says with absolute certainty that the gospel came to you in power, and I know this because it's rooted in what you have become. It is the result of the message that was preached. It is a powerful message. This is why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why not, Paul? Because it is the power of God to what? To salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says this to the, to the Corinthians, for the word of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, what's the gospel? It is the power of God. When the message of the gospel moves into the ears and through the head and down into the heart, gospel transformation takes place. When it becomes more than just mere facts and it's felt in the deep recesses of your soul, that is when true transformation happens. The gospel did something and they became something. That is what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. It was preached and you became something and that is evidence that you have been justified. Well, what do they become? That's the question. What were the things that did give evidence of their transformation? The first evidence of a transformed life, the first reason you can know that you've been justified is that you emulate the Lord Jesus. You emulate the Lord Jesus and you emulate others that serve him. Look at verse 6. This is the first confirming evidence of, the ju of their justification in this text. Verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They became imitators of Paul, of Silas, and Timothy. I'm going to refer to him as Silas. Paul usually calls him Silvanus, but in the book of Acts, Luke, Luke calls him Silas. It's just like saying 
Dominic and Dom, okay? So they became imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and of the Lord. This word imitators, it's, it's the same word that we get our word mime from or, or mimic. Well, what does a mime do? Mime kind of like, you've seen one of these guys, he, he just imi- he imitates someone else's movement. And a mimic, a mimic can, can mimic someone's movements or someone's speech, but it's not just talking about outward imitation here. It's not talking about just mimicking someone's speech. Their imitation went well beyond the outward. It went well beyond just mere words, even actions. These young believers began to even take on the characteristics of Paul and Silas and Timothy. They were a carbon copy of the same attitudes, a carbon copy of the same convictions and passions as these missionaries. They bore witness to how these men conducted themselves in holiness, and when they saw and observed holiness, they went out and they were holy. They were recipients of love from these missionaries, and in turn, they went out and demonstrated that same love. They observed the supernatural joy that these men had, even in the midst of suffering, and then they too, they experienced that same joy in the midst of suffering. They were imitators. And remember this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they didn't come riding into Thessalonica, decked out in sweet robes and riding on white stallions. When Paul, Silas, and Timothy came into Thessalonica, these guys were beat up. They were bruised, they were battered, they were bloody, because they had just suffered tremendous persecution in Philippi. I mean, just a gang jumped all over them and started beating them up, and they were thrown into prison, and that is how they walked into Thessalonica, preaching the gospel. Nothing fancy about who they were, what they wore, what they looked like. Look at uh, chapter 2 in Thessalonians. We get a glimpse of this when Paul says this in verse 1. Right there in chapter 2, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have the boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. What makes the Thessalonians' imitation even more remarkable is that Paul was only with them for a short amount of time. Uh, You heard John Paul read that this morning from Acts 17. Uh, the, The scriptures say there that he was only there for three Sabbath days. And he would do what he normally is accustomed to do. He'd get into a new town. He'd go right to the synagogue. He'd start preaching Christ. He wasn't well received there. And so what he, he did, normally what he does, is he'd go to the synagogue first. If he's rejected there, he'd go into the streets, into the marketplace. And he'd be, he would proclaim Christ to the Gentiles. So we don't know if he was only there for maybe three weeks, maybe a little bit longer. But I think it is significant to point out it didn't take long for these believers to start looking and acting like Paul, like Christ. And the reason why they started looking and acting like Paul and Christ is because they were genuinely converted. They began to take on all those attitudes and actions because there was true justification in their hearts. There have just been too many who were sitting in churches and they don't look and sound like true believers. Just too many. And the reason why they don't look and sound like true believers is because they're not. And I was one of them for so many years, claiming Christ, professing Christ, basing it on some sort of experience, but looking nothing like Jesus and bringing shame to his name because people would see the way that I would live 
and say, wait a second, is that how a Christian's supposed to live? Maybe. Too many people sitting in churches that don't resemble Paul or Christ, but that wasn't the case for the Thessalonians. Immediately after the reception of the gospel, they started mirroring Christ, looking, sounding like him, and giving evidence of true justification. And this is why Paul says, he says this numerous times, I exhort you to be imitators of me. Be imitators of me, he says in 1 Corinthians 11. Pattern yourself after me just also as I am of Christ. He said to the Ephesian church, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. How does a son imitate a father? The answer is actually in verse 2 in Ephesians 5. He says, and walk in love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We are to imitate Paul, Silas, and Timothy so far as they imitate Christ. Why? Because Christ is the supreme example. We want our lives to look and smell and and send off the same fragrance that Christ had. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, a Christian should be a striking likeness of Jesus Christ. We should be a picture of Christ. Oh, my brethren, there is nothing that can be so advantage to you. Nothing can so prosper you, so assist you, so make you walk towards heaven rapidly, so keep your head upwards toward the sky and your eyes radiant with glory like the imitation of Jesus Christ. Look, so those who have been justified you're going to emulate Jesus. You say, well, what, in what way are we to emulate Jesus? Did Paul have something specifically in mind? And the answer is yes. And it's right here again in the text. Verse 6, you received the word in what? In much affliction. But you did that with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This word receive here, it means that they welcomed it. It was a deliberate receiving Much in the same way that you put out the welcome mat for a guest or a visitor or a friend, that's what they did. This was their approach when the Word of God came to them. They welcomed the Word, and they welcomed it with great joy. They embraced the Word. They cherished the Word. They valued the Word of God. And it says that it came at a cost. Look at the text. They received the Word in what? In much affliction. That word there for affliction, it means severe pressure. It's like a grape that's squeezed until the juice comes out of it. And it's heightened by the word much. There was much affliction. These Thessalonians faced incredible persecution, incredible opposition. Look again in chapter 2. Paul outlines this for us in verse 13. He says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that Here it is, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is, it is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And verse 14, and you brothers, here it is again, you became imitators, imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, Judea. for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And when you look back in the book of Acts and the apostles are preaching the gospel and some people are getting saved, 
but others are shutting their ears to it and persecuting that early church and the apostles. This is exactly what Christ said. You're going to be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And you know how they move the gospel out? Because of persecution. Because they were preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, they were being persecuted, and so they spread to Judea. And they preached the gospel in Judea, and they were persecuted, and they spread to Samaria. And what Paul is saying is, you're experiencing the same kind of suffering that we suffered. But they did it with joy. They counted themselves worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. That's what's significant about this. It was accompanied with joy in the Holy Spirit. And I'll just say this. How do you know that you're truly justified? You don't want to bail. You don't want to shut up when you're talking about Christ and people start making fun of you and mocking you. When family wants to disown you, you actually consider that joy. It's a supernatural joy that the Spirit gives you because you're representing Christ. And you're not going to be quiet. And you're not going to run away. Because your love for them, you want to expose them to Christ. Paul says, I know that you're elect because when the gospel came to you, you received it with joy. This is an evidence of true justification. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, you still have joy. This is characteristic of all the believers of God. I think about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. There it says, by faith, Moses, when he grew up, he refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the approach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I always appreciate when John Paul prays, he always reminds me of the promises of God. There's a greater promise, a greater reality, something that causes us to endure whatever persecution we suffer because there's something greater beyond. And Christ is the ultimate example. Well, what does it say in the next chapter in Hebrews, chapter 12? It says we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. So the first evidence of a truly justified life is that we emulate Paul, we emulate Jesus, but there's a second evidence, and that second evidence is when you become Christ-like in your example to others. You become Christ-like in your example to others. Look at verse 7. It says, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Not only have the Thessalonians received the word of God, but their salvation was now manifested in their witness to others. Their conversion, their transformation became an example to others. The word example, uh, we get the word um, type from. It's the word tupas. Originally, it referred to a, to a black eye. You, you left a mark on somebody. What this is talking about is that the Thessalonians left a mark on other believers. They left an impression on other believers. They served as a pattern for others to follow. They didn't break the chain of imitation. You say, well, how influential was this young church? 
Their testimony spread, look, throughout all the region. The text says, you became an example to who? To all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia is northern Greece. Achaia is southern Greece. And when you think about our church, Grace Church of the Valley, here in the Central Valley, it's like we, we'd have a reputation for all of northern California and southern California. The, the Thessalonians were an example to all of Greece. That's how far-reaching their testimony and witness was. And the proof of their election was displayed in lives of obedience and faithfulness. And it was evident in their community and beyond. You know, when I was at Shepherd's Conference two weeks ago, I was super encouraged. You know, I'm rolling with Scott, and so I'm meeting and talking to a lot of people. And I was just surprised at how many people know about us. And it's not just Scott's preaching ministry. There are people live streaming uh, there are people that are tuning in to our, um, to our app. Uh, lots of churches are modeling themselves after our church. Uh, I got an email from a pastor in Porterville who, who was looking, out, looking to us and, and, and asking about resources so that they can improve their equipping at their church. Happens all the time. But you know what's crazy? Is that when they were talking about our church, they weren't just talking about pastors and elders. They are actually talking about you. Individually, several names came up. I was actually amazed. And I was very grateful. Specific names, whether you were influential in someone coming to faith, whether you were influential in discipling someone, whether it was your generosity, I was super blessed to hear that. That we have become a model church for other churches and they're following in our footsteps. But it's not just that it's a corporate reality. It's an individual reality. Husbands, are you being a model, an example of Christ-like love and service to your wives? I encourage you, at Shepherd's Conference, Tom Pennington preached on husbands loving their wives. The audio is online. Go and listen to that. Wives, listen to that with your husbands to kind of up the level of accountability. It was such a great message but husbands, are you modeling for your wives what that Christ-like love looks like? Wives, are you living in, in humble submission to your husbands and modeling that for your kids and for your husband the way that the church is supposed to submit to Christ? Parents, collectively, are you modeling what it's like to love and live for Jesus to your kids? Our kids pick up on so much. Just the other day... Um, Titus was playing with Judah, and uh, Titus called Judah donkey face. I said, dude, donkey face. Titus, don't call your brother donkey face. Where'd you hear donkey face? Well, you called me donkey face the other day. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> uh, okay, my bad, son. Um, we, we were playing around, and we were calling each other names, and donkey face came out, and now he's repeating it. And I just realized, man, our kids catch so much stuff that we say and do they're modeling, they're little mimics, little mimes of the things that we say and do. We need to be cautious. I want my kids to have a big view of Christ, to live their lives for Christ because they see mommy and daddy doing that consistently and passionately. Single people, you are at a stage in your life where you are free. You're free to live all out for Christ with very little restrictions. 
are other single people looking at your life and saying, that's how I should be living for Christ. Students, you're always going to have underclassmen looking to you. You're always setting the tone, setting the pace. On your campuses, are you setting the example of what it looks like to be a young person living in a world that rejects Christ? I just heard a young girl this morning, she was memorizing Philippians 2, and I was super encouraged by that. You are influential at every stage of your life. Are you being a model, an example for others to follow? The way that you're living, are you exemplifying Christ in your attitude and actions? So the first evidence of a truly justified life is you emulate Paul and Jesus. The second evidence is that you become Christ-like in your example for other believers to follow. And now there's a third evidence. The third evidence that you've been justified is when you evangelize. When you evangelize. Look at verse 8 with me. Paul says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not to say anything. How did they have such an amazing impact on their community and beyond? Was it that they were living for Christ? Absolutely. Was it because they were turning away from sin? Absolutely. Was it because of the new habits they had? We'd say yes. But what Paul says here is it goes beyond that. Paul says that the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. The word of the Lord sounded forth from you. The Thessalonians sounded the word of God like a trumpet. The word of God came to them from Paul and it was echoed out. It reverberated. The message continued to go out. They were preaching the word. They were telling people about the gospel. This is well before radio. It's well before internet. And here they are, this young infant church broadcasting who God is, who Christ is, and what he has done for sinful man. The phrase, word of the Lord, it's synonymous in the book of Acts for the gospel. You know, it always irks me. I mentioned this last time that I preached that some people like to say things like, there's no need to speak the gospel if you are living the gospel. They say, that's all we need to do is we need to, to model it. We need to exemplify it. And if you do that well, and if you're not hypocritical, then that is sufficient. That is not sufficient. We need to actually open up our mouths. We need to say something. You know, we went to Disneyland. We took um, our kids to Disneyland for Titus's fifth birthday. And uh, my mom went along with us <clears throat> just to put you, transport you there with us at Disneyland. We were uh, just getting off of Star Tours. So we got off at Star Tours. And uh, when we got off, I noticed some stormtroopers. And I said, kids, we're going to go take some pictures with some stormtroopers. Let's go. And so dad jams. <sighs> There's like thousands of people there at Disneyland. And Jess says, hey, Dom, where's the stroller? And I said, the stroller's over there. So my mom and uh, Jess, they go get the stroller, and I jam over to the stormtroopers. I get the kids there. I pull out my camera, and I'm taking pictures with the stormtroopers and the kids. This is awesome. Happy fifth birthday, Titus. And then my wife comes to me and says, hey, where's Judah? And I said, well, I thought you went to put him in the stroller. And she said, no, I don't have Judah. Where's Judah? And I looked back and I said, I don't know where Judah's at. 
And then that pit, that, 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 that feeling you have in your stomach just started, to, am I the only one that's lost a kid before? You guys, have you guys experienced this? I go into complete panic mode because now there's thousands of people and I don't know where my son is and he's two. And so I start running back and forth, up and down, looking, and everyone becomes suspicious at that point. Who took my son? And I'm running up and down looking for my son and I'm having no success. And I'm thinking all the worst thoughts, someone took him or he got hurt or something. It wasn't until I'm all the way down, um, almost by the castle, looking for him, and I hear, Judah! Judah! And I look, and my wife climbed up the churro counter, and she is at the top of her lungs, screaming for our son. We, we found him. He's hopefully he's still over there, checked in. That was a terrifying moment, but it was also very instructive because as I was running back and forth like a madman, I wasn't saying one word. Our son came out when my wife called for him. She used her mouth. She was trumpeting the sound of her mouth, and Judah finally returned. The reality is that there's lots of lost sons and daughters, and we can't think that we're just going to live the Christian life apart from opening our mouths and sharing the gospel. We need to say something. We need to plead with people. We need to cry out and tell people they need to return to God, that judgment is coming, that repentance needs to happen, and that God is a gracious God who will forgive. If we don't do that, we're never going to be effective in our evangelism. Well, you say, how far-reaching was their impact? Paul says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Their gospel impact, it traveled beyond the region of even Greece and it moved to other places throughout the world. You say, well, does that mean that they sent missionaries out? Oh, I think so. I mean, if they're modeling after Christ, who is the greatest missionary in Paul and Silas and Timothy, who are missionaries themselves, they probably sent out missionaries. But I really think, in addition to that, it was their simple obedience, just day-to-day -day bearing witness to Christ, to their neighbors, to their friends, to everyone that they came in contact with. And God is so sweet in his providence, he planted this church in Thessalonica on a major trade route. It was a major commercial area, and thousands of people are flowing in and through the city and so this church has been very intentional, very strategic. As people are coming through, they're making sure that they hear the gospel. And people were taking that gospel message, returning to their home, and telling other people. So much so that Paul says, look, I don't even have to say anything about you. I'm not the one reporting about your salvation. Other people are coming to me and saying that you have been transformed by the gospel. That's exactly, if you think back to the early in the book of Acts, and even in the Gospels, that's exactly what the religious leaders were afraid was going to happen, that this message was going to continue to spread. But you know what's sweet? It's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. The gates of hell are not going to prevail. I'm going to build my church. The Gospel is going to go to the ends of the earth. And the Thessalonians are making that happen. Grace Church, I want to follow in this rich lineage of faithful churches that proclaim the gospel. 
I love that we're supporting eight missionaries. I am thrilled that the Stepanians are going to Uganda. I'm going to miss them dearly. But it's right and good that they're going. And I'll just be honest with you, I want more. I want to, I want to raise up more people to go to the mission field and do the kind of work that they're going to do for the gospel. And I'm not just talking about overseas missions. I want us to be more faithful. This is why we're doing a float. It was so funny hearing Demo and Blake talk about the float idea. So we're doing a float? Oh, yeah. Because we want people to come to Summerfest. We want people to come to Kids Fest. I actually contacted a speaker who's going to be coming to speak at Summerfest, and he responded to me, absolutely, I'm going to come. And this is what he said. The reason why I really want to come is because my nephew, four years ago, went to one of your Summerfests and he got saved. And so I am overjoyed. I am excited. I'm thrilled to come to Summerfest and preach the gospel. We want to be an evangelizing church. That is a mark of a truly justified person. We evangelize. So the first evidence, again, we emulate Paul and Jesus. The second evidence is that we become Christ-like in our example. The third is when we evangelize. And now fourthly, you know you've been justified when you become exclusive in your worship. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. This word turned, again, it's synonymous in the book of Acts for conversion. And there's several things that I want you to notice about this idea of turning. Okay, the language points, first of all, to a decisive turning. It is an intentional turning. It's deliberate. It's not impulsive, but it's very calculated. And I want you to notice the word order. It doesn't say that they turn from idols to God. It says they turned to God from idols. Then you say, well, why is that important? It's important for several reasons. First, before anyone turns to worship God, we're worshiping something else. We all have idols and we are bowing the knee every day to these idols. This is a universal reality that we are hardwired to worship. This is the predisposition of our hearts to bow down to false gods. So word order is important but so is math. And the reason why math is important is because we just don't add Jesus to the pantheon of idols that we have. We just don't include him in the things that we're worshiping. No, when Christ takes residence in our hearts, then every other idol is evicted, and you're happy to kick every idol out. That's what the scriptures teach. We see all idols for what they truly are when we set our eyes on who Jesus truly is. They're vain, Helpless, lifeless, and sorry imitations that we need to get rid of. This is why Paul and Barnabas say, men, you need to turn from these vain things and you need to serve the living God. We don't try to reform our lives before we come to Christ. It's the coming to Christ that reforms our lives. I also want you to notice that it wasn't just a turning attention to God, but it's actually a turning of direction. It is a turning of allegiance. It's a turning of attitude. It is a total changing of direction. You know, when I was growing up, I had a friend. His name's Junior. Still a good buddy of mine. And um, <clears throat> when I was young, not a believer, uh, I ran away from home for about two weeks. And I actually stayed at my buddy Junior's house. 
And uh, my, my buddy Junior, he's from, he's not from Thailand, he's from the hood, he's from East LA, but his mom is from Thailand. Um, and she uh, was a worshiper, she had a Buddha. And it was just kind of eerie, she would pray to this thing and her chanting was kind of weird and she would do this all the time, like right on the dial. When the clock struck, she'd start to pray and she'd pray for 30 minutes and she'd pray down to this, this Buddha thing. And she had a mantle in her living room and, you know, if we were like watching the game, she'd come and she'd pray and it was just weird. Um, but my buddy Junior got converted. He became a believer in high school and he was a big hothead and a moron just like I was, um, wasn't going to school, um, was being disrespectful to his mom, but when he got converted, he started to evangelize to me and to his mom, and his life just dramatically changed. He actually started going to school, started being more respectful, just being faithful. Just this bonehead became a young godly man. And after four years of just consistent witness and testimony, his mom noticed a dramatic change. And she went to his church, showed up to a women's Bible study, and the women there were very welcoming, and they sat her down, and her name was Penny, and they said, Penny, um, what do you want to get out of this Bible study? What's your hope for this Bible study? And she said, I just want what my son has. And that night, Penny was converted, and a dramatic change happened. She went from serving her Buddha and having that mantle she got rid of all that stuff. And she didn't get rid of the mantle. You know what she did? She put two big stereo speakers there, and she would blast Christian music. And she'd just rock out to Christian music. But her whole life was transformed. She would get on a plane and go to Thailand, and she would evangelize her family. She owned a 7-Eleven in East L.A., and when people would come in, she'd tell them about Jesus. I mean, it was a dramatic transformation, getting rid of the idols and serving Christ. It was a tremendous example to me. You know, Penny, she um, died years ago. It was just all of a sudden an aneurysm that took her life. But I'll tell you this, I don't know very many people that evangelize with that kind of fervency and passion and love that Penny had. She's really a model to Junior and to me of taking the gospel to as many people as possible while you have an opportunity. That is an evidence of a transformed life, turning away from idols, being exclusive in our worship to God. And some of you might say, well, <clears throat> that's sweet, a story of a lady rejecting her Buddha and turning to God. But the reality, like I mentioned before, you might not have figurines on a mantle, but you're still, if you're not in Christ, you still have idols of your heart. And Luther said, idolatry, really, all it is, it's trusting in something other than God for your ultimate security. It's trusting in God for something other than your happiness. Another writer explains in detail what a counterfeit God is. He says this, a counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that if you were to lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you could spend most of your passions, most of your energy, most of your emotional and financial resources on it without even giving a second thought. It can be family, it can be children, it can be a career, it can be making money or achievement and critical acclaim, it can be social standing, it can be a romantic relationship or peer approval, it can be competence or skill, 
It could be security and comfortable circumstances. It could be your beauty or brains. It could be a great political or social cause, your mortality or your virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. There are so many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. We will become what we worship. And these Thessalonian believers had enough of their false idols. They were liberated and they were freed to serve the true and living God. And the question to you this morning is, are you exclusive in your worship? Does Christ and Christ alone own the throne of your heart? Are there competing idols? Because if you want to know if you're truly justified, the only one that gets your worship, the only one that gets your allegiance is Christ. So the first evidence, again, we emulate Paul and Jesus. The second is we become Christ-like examples. The third is we evangelize. The fourth is we become exclusive in our worship. And there's a fifth and final one. It is that we wait with eager expectation for the Lord's return. Look at verse 10. He says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians were waiting, were longing for the return of Christ. This is Jesus' promise. He said, I will come again. We saw this in John. I'm going to take you where I am so you could be with me. That is his promise to us that Christ is returning. In the book of Acts, the angels tell the apostles, Men, why are you staring up in heaven? This same Jesus who went up to heaven, he's coming back and he's coming back for you. It is a guarantee, a promise that we could bank on. The Thessalonians believed this and they were waiting with eager expectation. This word here, wait, anameno. You, you heard this word. Um, Scott described what meno means. It means to abide. Uh, anomeno means that you're waiting with eager expectation. You're waiting in this abiding state you're being sustained by this waiting. It's a patient waiting. And the present tense says that you continually wait for the Lord to return. My kids, every Christmas Eve, it is the hardest day to get them to sleep because they are just waiting with eager anticipation for Christmas. I can't get them to go to bed. I can learn a thing or two from my kids who just can't wait for Christmas to come. Does that mark our lives? When someone looks at you, do they say, man, they really expect Jesus to come back. They, they really expect Christ to return. It is not a passive waiting. It is an expectant, an active waiting. Look at these two verses. Titus chapter 2 says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, in verse 13, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter, Peter says this, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? In verse 12, we're looking, we're looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. This is a characteristic of those who have been truly justified. You are looking and waiting and with eager expectation, wanting Christ to return. These Thessalonians were eager for the return of the Lord. And the reason why that they were eager is because when Christ returns, he's going to make everything right. He's going to make everything right for the believer. 
But what's in store for the non-believer? Wrath and indignation. When I was not a believer, I used to have this reoccurring nightmare. This nightmare, uh, I was on the beach. It starts off great. Uh, People are barbecuing. The sun is out. The, The seagulls are flying. People are playing some football. And then all of a sudden, things change. The clouds come. It starts to rain. It starts to thunder. It gets really eerie and cold. And then all of a sudden, there's this big tidal wave that begins to form. Am I the only one that's had this nightmare? This tidal wave begins to form. And in every single dream, it doesn't matter what I do, but I can never escape it. And it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. And I've run as fast as I could. I've got in cars to try to outrun it. I've got in planes and helicopters. I've even flown in my dream, flown, flew in my dream. No matter what I did, holding my breath, I always get destroyed by this big wave. Here's the reality. For the non-believer, the Bible says this very clearly. Don't let anyone tell you any different. People are trying to erase hell. They're trying to get rid of judgments, trying to get rid of wrath. Something way worse than a nightmare is going to happen to those who don't believe. The wrath of God is being stored up and it's going to be poured out on all those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the same God who's going to inflict that wrath has also provided a way for us to escape that wrath. And this is what I long for, what I wait for. This same Jesus who took all of our sin and put it on the cross. This same Jesus who covers us and rescues us from the wrath to come is the same Jesus that we long for for, wait for. I don't know about you, but I want to see this Jesus. I want to look him in the face. I want to thank him and love him and serve him with no trace of sin, with no trace of selfishness. I want to fully engage and worship with him without the hindrances that I have today. True believers, those that have been justified, long for Christ to return when he'll make every wrong right when he'll introduce us to the saints of old, where we get to be reunited and, and, and restored to our lost family members, where we get to live eternal life with peace and joy and rest, we wait with longing expectation for Christ's return. That is a mark of a true believer. So, five things, five evidences. I want to close the same way we began. How do you know that the declaration not guilty applies to you? How do you know that you have been truly justified? How do you know that it wasn't just a prayer that you said several years ago, but it's actually working in your life? Just look at your lifestyle. Do you emulate Christ? Are you Christ-like in your example? Do you evangelize the lost? Are you exclusive in your worship? Do you wait with eager anticipation for the Lord? These are just some evidences that we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want us to be a church that is chosen, that is changed, and that becomes a channel for others, not just for other churches, but for our family, for our kids, to have a long-lasting gospel impact to the glory of God.